Hey, welcome to The Row Show. It's uh, Lawrence and Jake, and today we have such an epic episode. We got uh, James Thompson in. I mean, I know he's come in before for the, the Rock the Boat episode, but this one we talk specifically about his rowing career, his uh, racing, and, and get into some really, really cool details. We didn't speak about his racing in Rock the Boat, whereas now we get into his gold medal at London, his his world championship results in Amsterdam, but also a couple of disappointing results, like the result in Rio. A massive part of our talk is just about performance and about training. Yeah, so I really enjoyed the parts where, where James starts talking about his performance, how the consistency of the training, how important little aspects that I think you don't, you never see and you, you very rarely think about when you're watching an Olympic performance. And, and these are deep behind the scenes kind of ideas. And, and that's what I enjoyed. Yeah, James James talks a lot about the culture of rowing and that, that culture comes into play every day. Whereas, whereas rowing, you see a six minute race, but you spend hours every day working to make yourself better. A lot of that has to go with the mindset. That's really important. James gets, gets involved there. So one of my favorite parts is, is when James talks about crushing the Chinese crew in training before the, the Olympic yeah. race and like sort of just rowing through them in steady state kind of wrote them off for the Olympic race that they or the heat that they were up against them. I mean, it's quite a unique way of looking at it. And it's not like it's not a major thing that you just rode through them on, on at steady state, but to it just gave them such a big mental boost. So you can follow James on Instagram and Twitter. His uh, tag is at uh, JMT Row. Go, go follow. He does some really interesting stuff even these days since he stopped rowing. It's still very, very cool. And any other info of the races or anything, that will all be in the show notes. So go have a look and check share it with your mates cool and go follow our instagram account it's the rosho sa just search and, and and go give us a follow we'll put some some interesting ideas coming up on there and and cool shots so yeah and then you can comment there if you you have any ideas for the show or anything that any questions on on the episode or on james so yeah let us know James Thompson is the most decorated row that's come out of South Africa, so it's been great to pick his brains about his successes and, and how his journey unfolded. And I hope you guys enjoy the episode too. Yeah, enjoy the show. Welcome to The Row Show. We are your hosts, Lawrence Britton and Jay Green. This is a podcast where we're going to be going into everything related to sport and performance. And we're also going to talk a bit about rowing. In South Africa. Right. Brings people together, breaks down barriers. Yeah, right. My passion winning to be the best. Being the best is something we strive for. Crucial role in South Africa. Passion. Great. Passion. Fiction. Gold. Ultimate goal. Glory. Relentless training. Pain. Pain. <laughs> cool. So, uh, welcome to the Rosho, James. Uh, I know that we we had you on for the the Rock the Boat a few weeks ago, but we said that we'd need a whole other episode to to get into your results, your racing, and, and your career as a, as a professional athlete. So I think that's what we're going to do today. And yeah, welcome. Thanks for coming. Cool. Happy to be back on the road show. And I think um, a, good, a good place to start off with is definitely be one of the highlights of your careers. Maybe even the, the, the biggest part of your career is the 2012 London experience where you won that gold medal. Um, we'll chat a bit about that and can you all tell us, because I know it was, a close, it was a close call on getting to the Olympics in the first place. Uh, you've told me many times, can you just explain to the listeners the experience of qualifying? Yeah, I think I've had some crazy tight finishes in my life. Um, luckily for me, I spent the vast majority of my career being on the right side of those tight calls. Um, so, yeah, qualification for London, we had had a really bad, or really not bad, but tough run in the years building up. And then 2011-ish, 
I was pretty despondent, or 2010, I was pretty despondent. We'd had about five years of getting our asses handed to us on an international stage. And then just in the last year, things started coming out in 2011, and we started showing a little bit of speed. And then into the World Champs, oh, we got an A final at Lucerne, and that was like just before the qualification in 2011, and that gave us a lot of hope and stuff. But then we didn't have a great World World Champs, um, which is the qualification, and but we snuck into the B final. Uh, we stuffed up the heat and had to go through the rep, and then you basically half the rep is going into the top 12, and the rest is going home. And basically, top 11 is your your Olympic Games cutoff. So yeah. So if you if you're listening and you you're a little bit confused on the on the the numbers to qualify for the Olympics, there's in the lightweight men's four, there's 13 spots, and 11 of them get chosen at the World Champs the year before the games, and there's a the last two spots later on, but. That is the worst place to to end up. Jacobs has qualified for the games through the last chance. So we're talking uh, twenty eleven world champs top eleven qualification. Yeah. So we come through this. We come through this rep, and oh, Johnny caught a crab at the start in that rep. So there's big pressure, but we know we're pretty good to get through. We know we we've, we've got the like we were in the A final sort of six weeks back. We know we're quite confident in the rep, despite knowing it's it's do or die. And John catches a crab like four or five strokes in and the whole boat like sucks down on the side. But luckily it was out the blocks and there was time to recover and we got through relatively easy. But then the final, so then it's the B final, um, but you then know you're in the race of death. Because that like, spots uh, 7 to 12. Yeah, spots 7 to 12. You so know, one, one crew out of your, your, your B final is not going to the Olympics. So it's basically the only race you'll ever get on to the start line and be like, I don't want to come last. That's the only thing you yeah, care about. Instead of winning. Instead of winning. You don't want to beat anyone in particular. You're not like, oh, we want to like save our gutter and win the B final. All you get on that start line is to say, I just don't want to be lost. Everyone else has gone to the Olympics except one person, basically, or one crew. And, yeah, we lined up, came down the track, and I remember coming through like halfway and being like, no, we're good here. The French are so far at the back. The French are done. There's no way. Germans were well up, but the French were out the back. They were definitely going to be the last crew. And about 300 meters later, they'd done a crazy push, and they got through the whole field, and we were then in last. I think we went from third to last in the last thousand, like three or four times. Crazy spin finish towards, scramble towards the line, and we got across, I think, in about, I think we were fifth. Um, so we had the last qualifying space, and we qualified by like half, a quarter of a canvas, half a canvas. Um, so yeah, lucky to be on the start line come London. Um, obviously, we had, had a good year between that point in London. But. but so for me, I remember because I was at the World Champs. Me and uh, Ramon just missed qualification, and it was berserk that race. Every crew out of the six was leading at one point and coming last at one point in the race, and they crossed the line with the whole field within one length, pretty much. I think it's less than it's a, it's around two seconds, I think. Yeah, I've always thought that like world rowing should make a much bigger thing out of the B finals in the qualification year. It's almost like when they pub broadcast it, they don't want to like hype up the f- how much drama and stuff there is of the commentators, and they barely talk about it. I think the B finals should run last on the Olympic qualifications, and I think so. They should race the A finals, and then at the end of the day, they should race the B finals where the cuts are, and it should be explained every race like. The commentators should talk people through and say, like, because the drama yeah, is real. Because there's some, there's different amounts of uh, yeah. entries. So, like, like, some races, the B final has three spots going to the games, and other races, it's five. Like, uh, yeah. and most of it is five. So, the racing is berserk. I mean, that is where 
that's definitely the way the, the tightest racing of the, the regatta is. And oh. like l- all the rowers are there watching because you know that those B finals, that's I mean, people are, are, it's the Olympic dreams going on there. Grown men crying, guaranteed. Either crying with happiness or they're crying with sadness. And I remember we all ended up like washed up against the bank. And then I can't even remember the crew of the car. I think it was the Germans or someone climbed out of their boat to come and give us a hug because we had just made it. And it was just awesome. Oh, like the emotions were so strong, but the guys who. The guys who got lost, man, was absolutely gut-wrenching for them, and they ended up not qualifying the next year either, I don't think, and they missed the games, so it was really sad for them. Um, but that's that's how cutthroat it is, eh? half, a, half a canvas, and it's your Olympic dream, gone. But I'm sure the, the great feeling didn't last too long, because I think moving on pretty soon, you realize that you've got, you're actually going to the Olympics, and now you have to start moving towards an even bigger goal. What was, what, can you talk to us a bit about the attitude amongst, amongst you guys going forward to the Olympics? I know you, I mean, you did very well at the Olympics, but what was it like? Did you know you, did you expect to do well or was it more about just getting the, the small things right and, and taking it day by day? Yeah, so we were certainly part of the back of the pack at, in the qualification year, so 2011. And I think if we, hadn't have quali- if we had had to go through late qualification, I think we would have qualified late, but I don't think we would have done nearly as well at the Games. I think qualifying, getting the qualification out the way, calmed us all down and let us get on with the show and let us move forward um, but more importantly I think it like it just gave us a bit of time to build a little bit of confidence that we had qualified for the games it was this big thing for our whole lives we'd been building up for and the lightweight throwing in South Africa it had two Olympic cycles where they hadn't qualified anyone so it was good to sort of like put that stamp down move on to the next thing mentally but we really came together as a unit I think in that next year and physiologically not a lot changed from when we were just part of the pack to being able to box for the medals. It was really about how technically we moved together and our race strategy and technically the changes were technical, they weren't so much physiological. Um, I think most of us moved a second or two on the ergo, it wasn't no huge fundamental changes there yeah but we had a really good year in the olympic year and the attitude between the team was really good and the team dynamic was just next level and i think we just kept gaining momentum and then our final six months we had momentum on our side and the bit in our teeth and tell us tell us a a bit about the the selection between the the qualification and the olympics because your crew changed a little bit and how how that all, all went down yeah, so Cizwe had a really difficult 2011, um, and he didn't make the World Champs boat in 2011. Uh, he had some injuries, and I think he was in he was in World Champs Slovenia 2011. He was there, but they ended up not even getting on the start line. Um, he raced in 2011 Lucerne. He also got to the regatta and ended up not racing. Both times were with partners who had got injured at the last moment, but he had also had a very difficult season, so he missed selection. And obviously, he was part of the final boat, so... The combination of the four of us only raced together in the Olympic year. And we didn't miss a regatta and Cesar had a really healthy year and Matt had a good year with his back. In 2010, Matt's back was... Cesar was strong in 2010, but Matt's back had a problem. Um, so we missed that one together. So the four of us had kind of never got all of us together in the same place for a few years building up. Um, but at the same time, we had a squad system and we kept rotating. Tony was in the boat in Cesar's place in 20. 10 and then Tony was also in the, I mean in 2011 which was the qualification so we qualified with Tony in the boat and that team dynamic was really good and 
I think Tony striked really well, but Sizwe is one of the best strikes I've ever had behind in my life. Yeah, so it was awesome to finally get that combination together, and I think it helped us build momentum when finally the four of us were to, were able to get in a boat together. We'd had a couple of glimpses of how fast that combination could be in the four years building up to it, but the stars had never aligned quite like they did in those last eight months building up to London, where we, I think in, in the last couple of months, we barely missed a session. And it, for that combination of guys to be injury-free was quite rare in our, our experience, yeah. Certainly between Cesare and Matt, um, tended to get injured and ill a little bit more than John and myself. And you think that just because of the Olympics, because of the like the how how prestigious the event is, that they put in that little bit extra effort on on looking after themselves, or do you think it was just oh, the I training think, was starting to the team training was starting to to get better? I think the team professionalism got better and better through the years, and that allowed attention to detail. I, I don't doubt that those guys were their focus in the previous years, despite getting injured a lot. They're two of the most focused athletes you can ask for. So I don't think it was a case of being tidy in that sort of space. I think it was more they were looked after a little bit better in like an overall squad. There's more resources to be able to like dedicate time to looking after them. Physios on training camps more often, more opportunity for physio between training sessions and stuff. Um, so just the resources in the Olympic year went up and that just made that one millimeter difference um, and more people to be able to like pull in from a session a little bit earlier as opposed to later to be able to see that actually they're overcooking it. Um, but quite possibly the reason they had more injuries was because of they were animals. You know, both those oaks, they don't believe in pulling softly and they slave like animals. Uh, maybe that's why they they got injured a little bit more than John and myself. Maybe we were the slackers. <laughs> so then talking about your, your teammates and just go through your boats, who's sitting in which position, what the what are the roles in, in each position there? 2011? Uh, 2012, no, for your Olympic, Olympic crew. So we got Cesar in the front. He's just got an incredible rhythm. He really was, the, the rhythm was always just always really good. And I guess he's quite stubborn in a lot of stuff he did, and he always like went after his rhythm. And when he wasn't happy and was grumpy in the front, then he would it would be because the rhythm wasn't what he wanted. And we took a long time to slowly establish that. And sometimes the race rhythm we got wrong, but over the years it really developed. And still, the best stroke we've sat behind for sure in my career was Cesare, really long on the front and smooth, smooth, smooth. He just had a good turn of speed, which is something like John and I always had. So Cesare added into that mix when. John starts going in the three seats, so John was behind him. The turn of speed that Cesar had was really phenomenal, and I've always loved racing with a stroke who has a turn of speed at the end. So then John was in the three seats and sort of really consistent, really long again, and a really explosive turn of speed and really good. I think he gave like good support to Cesar. I think he probably did a better job in the three seat than I could have done. Um, just by being like really consistent day for day is what I'm talking about like month after month day for day being able to set up the same platform that Cesare could build a rhythm off I think John's phenomenal at that the intensity that John trains at is really high so I think that's really good to have had up there in the three seat Matt uh, physically in the two seat so then it went Cesare, John then Matt Matt was just a slave and a workhorse uh, I couldn't warm up in pairs it's quite funny like Matt and I couldn't warm up in pairs together because I take about 10, 15 minutes, just over 10 minutes to like warm up to normal steady state pressure. And Matt's pulling like harder than my steady state by the second stroke. He's like all in. So when we rode pairs in the beginning, Cesar had to sit with his foot on the rudder and they would just laugh in the stern at what was going on in the back. I'm sure um, that was Matt's point as well. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it gave him some satisfaction. 
Matt, uh, Matt was really proud of that, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, but Matt's absolute physical slave and like just kept the power coming through the boat. And I think that was really good. Matt is a cold and had a really good aptitude in a race to be able to read the race in a moment. And um, more importantly, like stick to our guns and under pressure. His race plan was really planned out often. And he would take us through that before. And generally, that's what we would deliver. There wouldn't be huge fluctuations in the race plan. And then me in the back, oh, I just got a free ride to a large degree. <laughs> but certainly high power and just pushing out the watts and just keep feeding the watts into the rhythm up front. That would be where, where my position in the boat was. And I also like to keep my eyes out, you know, to make sure no one was moving on us at the wrong times. <laughs> I see. For sure. Soon you guys um, find yourselves in London and you must have known that you had a, you had a pretty good regatta at Lucerne and you must have known realistically you had a shot of, of doing something special in, in London. Tell us about like the lead up to the final and, and what the, the balance between experiencing the Olympics and, and dealing with the pressure of, you know, you've been working for something for four years and suddenly this was the moment. Yeah, I think that's huge. Uh, there's a huge element of it, but the huge part about it is that it's overhyped. But it's very important to grasp it, um, that it is overhyped. And we just really try to like play the Olympics down in our heads. So we spoke a lot about calming it down and just doing our thing. We spoke a lot about how it was just a normal regatta with a circus attached to it. We had lots of team chats around that, lots of chats with Paul Jackson, our, co- our coach at that point who had been to many games and I think that was really, despite the four of us having never been to the Olympics, it was really important to have him and that calmed us down and got us across the line. Uh, we said our approach, we really thought out our training program in the last little bit and first of all I guess it's important to say like Lucerne was really good and we had probably won- we probably had a better race in Lucerne than our Olympic final but we only finished second. And we were coming at the Chinese. But what it allowed us to do is get on the start line. The Chinese won. Chinese won Lucerne. And then it allowed us. But then what happened is in the week we were rowing and we had some steady stuff. And we came up near the Chinese. And Paul kind of gave us a bit of free reign on the, over the, quietly over the mic. Because we, in, yeah, internationally radios. you train with radios. So your coach can talk to you without a megaphone. So he can talk to you even if you're sitting next to another crew. And Paul subtly gave us a bit of free reign to make sure we got through the Chinese and training steady state and we got off and we were like they didn't seem to be going so well at all pretty sure they weren't teabagging while we rode through them so we all looked at each other and then we trained our training program was set out like does that just uh, give you that a little bit of mental normally I don't think anything about it but that weekend it meant a lot I to mean us, because yeah. I mean the Chinese you'd beaten everyone else so the British the Danes the who, who else was, was up there? Aussies. The Aussies, the Aussies were really good. So you'd yeah. beaten them all at Lucerne, and the Chinese, Swiss, yeah. the Chinese had, had given you given you stick at the at Lucerne, and then training for like, training at the at the Olympic venue, you crushed them yeah, at steady state, steady which is like quite a weird thing. Yeah. Like it doesn't really mean that much, but it did mean a lot to us that uh, uh, that week, and it kind of cheered us up a little bit, you know, a little sort of like some giggles on the bus on the way home, but nothing really too meaningful, and then. Off we went and we then, got, but I think the, off we went into our training program and we really trained hard into the heat. And I think it's quite early to, Olympic regatta is long, it's a week long from your heat to your final. And we pushed really hard into the heat and we gambled that we would get through the heats. Yeah, and I think it paid off for us really well. And it was less so much physiological, I guess by that stage the physiological gains are quite minor. But mentally, we, we thought of ourselves as training until after the heats. And... Oh, it worked mentally for us um, and we came out the other side and 
were sort of reasonably fresh going into the semi-final and really strong going into the final. But I think if we had had a race to the rip with that sort of mentality, we probably would have run out of run out of cookies towards the latter end of the week. Yeah, because you did um, you didn't win the earlier races. No, finishing no. second and third uh, through the heat and the and this and the semi-final. Yeah, so I think the heat we squeezed second. Or oh, the heat we squeezed third, which was all we had to do, and the semi-final we got we got second in the semi. But they weren't sort of amazing performances, but we definitely came into the heat a little bit overcooked. Um, whether that's... On re- purpose, though. Yeah, by design, um, or at least... But whether there's actually a real physiological difference, I don't know. I think a bit of it's sort of more mental space and sort of really, or really thinking forward. It's a dangerous place to be if you get it wrong. Um, and you can live with a lot of regret, I guess, if you get it wrong. But mentally, it worked out really well for us and allowed us to be a little bit sort of more excited about the racing come the second half of the week. Um, yeah. Yeah, I've got it wrong. It's not fun. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys eventually find yourself in the final. And James, could you just speak to us about, give us a bit of a um, a blow-by-blow account of how the final panned out and the emotions and the, you know, how the how the race felt. Yeah, I remember feeling dead average in the warm-up. And for me, the warm-up going well was always like a fairly important thing. And I just remember like, overthinking the warm-up and not not feeling that good. And then I kind of was a bit resigned to it on the start line. I remember thinking, well, that was an awful warm-up and at least it's done. I think at that stage we were such a slick unit that we could be in that sort of space a bit and we could run an autopilot. And I think we had spent the whole year saying... The lightweight fours are starting too fast, and if you just start a little bit more patient, you'll come. Like we really had looked at a lot of racing in the 12 months and kept on every time we watched racing, said it's too fast. Every time we watched it, we looked at the split breakdown. We said starting too fast, starting too fast, and that gave us a lot of confidence when we came out like half a length down on on Denmark, and we're like, well, it's only half a length. It's normally a length, and we came through like 500, saying, well, you know, we're not that far down. We, that's pretty normal, normal to good. We were surprised that the Australians didn't go... Oh, the Australians did go up, and we were surprised because that was their first real performance of the year since they'd won World Champs the year before. And that was the first time they were showing like true speed over in lane one next to us. Um, and that was just a, starting to push off a little bit of wash off them. And this is like now 700 meters in. And there's a possibility of them starting to develop wash onto us. It was a surprise. It was the only part of the race that wasn't panning out as per our race plan. And I remember thinking, like, everyone's probably watching D- Denmark, but they that's very under control. It's the Aussies who have a big turn of speed in that third 500, and I was like, and they're really up. So I was a bit nervous of that coming through 750, but it was very much in our boat and clinical. And then I remember coming through the 1,000, and Matt sort of called our water, which was our, our traditional call at the 1,000 meters, our point where we stepped forward into the race. And I remember thinking, oh, God, that's pretty good, feeling pretty strong. But my really overlasting clear impression was when we came through 500 meters to go, um, or probably more like 350 to go, I remember thinking, I'm outrageously strong. Like, I've, I've undercooked this. <laughs> I've, I've had a rest on the track. And I remember I thinking, go. I have undercooked this, and we've still got half a length to go, and I am like, outrageously strong. And then I started like laying down the watts, which isn't the right idea, I guess. We really want to like step together. Um, so Matt calls it at about 400 to go and I remember stepping I remember hearing the 400 to go call and then he doesn't call the what we call the Munkle sprint or he doesn't call like the crazy sprint and then I'm going and I'm like 
it's now like he's made a call at like about 300. He doesn't call it in about just after the 250. I see Cizwe look left. I see Cizwe look right. And I'm still thinking I'm too strong. I'm still on the front foot and I see this look left, look right. And I go, we're not waiting for nothing. Turns out Matt had called it early, but the crowd was so loud that not, none of us had heard him or John had heard him. And Cizwe hadn't heard him. And then I see Cizwe left, right. And I'm just all in. Absolute max power, and you can see at that point if you really watch the video closely, you can check a step just after Caesar has a massive look. And when the Caesar does the look, you know he's strong, he doesn't look when he's on the limit. And yeah, even in the last 10 strokes, I remember like completely calm, being like, We're gonna do this, like, we're gonna win this. And at 10 strokes to go, if you look at the video, we're not definitely gonna do it. No, I think you guys, you guys took the lead in that race, maybe for about. 10 meters the last 10 meters of the race you guys were in front and you it almost seemed like you guys tied it perfectly and and watching the race you definitely wouldn't say that you guys would calm i mean obviously when you race it's a different experience but watching the boats go to the to the to the front of the i mean to the the last the last 50 meters everyone is changing places almost but often in those sprints it's like everyone's fading on the power and it's probably one of the only sprints of my life including amsterdam where I sprinted to the line with big, big power. Um, Amsterdam, we had good power, but the last 10 strokes, everyone's running out of power. And you, I remember- You don't think it's like, it's, it's about a medal at that point though. So like, you, 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 you know that you can win and pushing hard for 10 strokes and fading or 10 strokes and then another 10 strokes is not, it's, it's not really like, it's not you know, you're racing at home and it's, it's tight, but there's not like a huge amount riding on that result. That fate can come in, whereas you know that there's an Olympic gold medal on the, on the line. And, and it, it wasn't an Olympic final when we were doing it in my head. Yeah. It was just a race. It was really side by side. We'd been side by side so many times. The lightweight four teaches you how to be five boats wide in a sprint or four boats wide in a sprint. And it was just a sprint. And it was just a case of I'm strong enough to do this. And... But Certainly, all three, all three of the guys in front of me were clearly strong. Yeah, that's what I was going to well. say. Is you're, all pretty, you're all pretty strong because in your boat, stay straight down the track. Yeah, you, don't come, you don't go too skewed. No, we finished London there. out of the... We finished London off the boy line, and I think it was a good call by Cizwe. Um John and I have, like, a world-class last little yeah. bit. Um, I, I don't think we have the engine that Matt has through the sort of second 500 to a large degree. Um, but certainly, like, John and I, like coming to the line is world world class and we certainly Cesar had better to call to come off the rudder um, with about 10 strokes to go and let the boat be let it be what it is and we finished in the stroke side spoons out of the lane but I think taking off that the margins are tiny taking off that little bit of resistance ta- making that like instinctual decision in the last little bit um, without having resistance on the boat I guess it could be a massive factor. So Jeez, but that was a cool race to watch. Uh, so I was there because I went to watch um, Matt race or all four of you guys race, and it's one of the best live performances of sport I've seen on, on any yeah. on anything. I mean, the crowd, as you said, the crowd was oh, berserk, absolutely mental. And, and when they came past us, we were at about two hundred to go, and you could see the momentum in your boat. Like, well, obviously we knew you guys quite well. We knew that you had a big sprint, and you could see it happening. And I was like, this is on like this is really is possible to to come home with a win here yeah it, you can't really plan for that it's the only time in my whole own career where you haven't been able to like communicate in a sprint finish and i've often got lungs to be able to like call it up and often matt would run out of lungs and i would bring energy towards the last like 
250 or 100, he would call the timing, but I would be bringing a bit of energy to it. But there was no communication. I even remember thinking, like, there's no point of trying to add energy into this. It was absolutely wild. And as I say, we, we didn't even hear the final, the final step at 350 or whatever it's meant and to be. And then you were Olympic champion. Yeah, man, crossed the line. I was so confident in the last 10 strokes and then crossed the line and just didn't know. Oof. Just had absolutely no idea whether we had done it. And Matt had been shouting, yes, 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 which John and Cesar had obviously been hearing. And the two of them thought they'd crossed the line like meters and like half a length up because they weren't looking at that point. And Matt shouting, yes, yes, yes. And I crossed the line and I know that that man tight. Like I've got no idea whether we got that or not. John and Susan are celebrating and Matt and I are like looking around, the hands in the air, questioning whether we got it or not. And then I remember when we saw that sign, it was just like a, a, a straight up graphic, just RSA 1. And I didn't even look at a single thing there. I screamed. I was smashing my hand on the side of the boat. I woke yeah. up the next morning and my whole hand was blue from smashing the boat yeah, of you excitement. Could, you could definitely see from the, the TV the moment where you guys knew that you were Olympic champions. It's, it's definitely, I mean, like the experience is completely different, but you could see that you guys had just done something special. But yeah, very special result. I mean, that was the first um, gold in for, for rowing at Olympic Games. Also the first uh, African gold for rowing and also... Um, Caesar became the first person of color to win a gold medal. So, rowing gold medal. Yeah. Rowing gold medal. It was um, it was it was quite a it was quite a, a momentous occasion on that day. I, I think there were lots of firsts, um, but other than John, who had had an under twenty three, it was our first sort of senior win. As the four of us, it was our first major win. We hadn't won a World Cup as the four of us. We had won some international events. So for the four of us, it was our first major win. We'd had lots of um, international races being like below World Cups, but we had never won a World Cup and we'd never won a World Champs together. Um, so to get your first, and if you go back even further than that, Matt and I had like two silvers. I had a bronze from juniors, but I had never won. Matt had never won. Cesar also had a handful of medals, but never a real gold at World Cup or higher. Um, except for John's under 23 World Champs gold. Like we didn't have a lot of golds. And to finally get across that mark at the Olympics, yes, yeah, so the you biggest chose a plat- bloody good time yeah. to win a gold medal at the Olympics. <laughs> Given the choice, and yeah, um, and as I say, in marginal calls, I often ended up on the right side of it, um, but often it was the right side of it for a silver medal, and at least on that day, it was the right side of it for a gold, which is obviously incredibly special, and it'll change your life, that's for sure. Yeah, I guess you could say you 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 definitely lose more than you win, but the the the, the moments when you win count a thousand times more and I think winning Olympic gold medal will, you know it, it kind of just shows it just gives you it, it gives you the justice of why you actually go out every day and, and do everything like meddling yeah I've meddled at all levels of world rowing and a whole lot of them and multiple under 23 and world cups and stuff at the end of the day I've won one world cup one Olympics and one world champs it's only three races in my whole career that are really like worth winning that I got wins in so many world champs, so many world cups, and to leave with one win in each of them is incredibly special. All that, all the other second places pale into insignificance, in my view. I mean, you've had such a long rowing career, such high performance through your rowing career. I mean, you, you're definitely the most decorated South African oarsman, I think. And so let's go talk a little bit about the training. What does that performance and that training mean to you? Um, I think the training is, you gotta love it. Um, the racing is a small element, but you know, at the end of the day, if you add up the number of minutes a year we spend racing, 
it's I guess you would you'd probably fall short of two hours of racing in your year if you added in even the local racing I guess six minutes here six minutes there but overall the training is what you do huge amounts of and for me it was a, towards the end of my career I'd worked it out that it was a puzzle um, I saw the whole like rowing season as a puzzle and we had to put it together in the best way possible we had to get enough of each of the different aspects of the sport to be able to really perform on the day and the performance on the day was just like the exam what really excited me was putting that whole puzzle together and seeing how we came out on the other end um, yeah so for me training was everything and I think I learned a lot about training even in our last four years going into London we didn't know what was good enough and it made it, uh, we thought it was harder but after London we knew what like a really good performance was and what training what kind of training resulted in that that made it harder because then the st we knew where the standard was and we had to uphold ourselves to that standard every day and I think we spent a lot it's hard you spend a lot of energy upholding yourself to that gold medal standard but at the same time that's why you're there that's that's the objective so James you know at, at a professional level everyone is um, to a large degree doing the same sort of training um, approaching things in a very similar way how how do you as an athlete training at professional level make make those incremental games and what, what kind of things do you do to improve performance in an environment where everyone is is pushing the limits? Well, I'll agree with you that everyone's doing the same training program. I don't believe that everyone's doing the same training. Um, I think two different crews can push off and go do two hours of paddling or even like 20 Ks. They could even paddle at the same speed, but I think they could quite easily be doing two very different sessions in that. Um, just on sort of the level of intensity at which they're working at, um, mentally and physically, um, there are huge fluctuations, I believe, within the different crews, um, even within one squad and one team. And they can even be set out with the same objective and saying, like, we really want to, like, pedal lightly and, like, fluidly this session. There's some guys who just don't get that, and they can't get the adaptions that are really being desired in that. That's the important stuff, to really, like, to have a deeper grasp of what, guys are wanting to do and that doesn't mean that there aren't other sessions where it's two hours really a little bit firmer and stuff but to really have a tight loop with your coach and to work really well and and achieve the session's objectives which aren't always the same things and it's not just about being stronger and you know seeing how big your biceps are um, I think that's where John and I in the end of our careers were really good was to be able to f train at a low intensity with more feeling um, at certain sessions, but then at other sessions, um, the higher intensity stuff, be working harder than anyone else and really pushing out big watts. Um, I also think a lot of the mental stuff, like being able to get a balance, because sometimes I think some folks watched the so steady state and said, yeah, we barely focused. But that's, we would be able to come in and out of a really um, focused space by having that right balance of mental intensity during a steady state session, we'd be able to, I believe, achieve better technical gains and hold instead of like trying to have the perfect stroke for like 45 minutes and then emotionally being flat and not being able to like stay on the limit of focus if you're on the limit of focus you can't do that for two hours and the important thing in a steady session I believe is to be able to like have a really high level but not perfect level of stroke for the full two hours and even like what we were eating during that two hour session just so that we could focus a little bit better in the last um, 30 minutes of it and really get the technical gains in that time um, yeah I think if I think if a lot of guys heard how much uh, 
shit that John and I spoke halfway through sessions and towards the end of sessions. Like, I remember going next to the heavyweight men's pair, uh, Laurie and Sean, and we would laugh and like joke across each other in the middle of like an Olympic, there's, there's an Olympic team training, is what some people would think. And there we were laughing at each other, um, tuning each other, having a joke. And then, like, a minute later, we'd be back in thinking about the catch. And then we would be on that thought for a few minutes, and then we would move on to the next thing, then we would have a joke. Um, but at the end of the day, we had long, consistent patches of paddling. And for me, that allowed us to be really world-class through the periods, through the long stretches of training, six weeks at a time. And um, what, what, what was it like out the boat? You know, how, what, kind of, what kind of things did you try to do every day and what things did you believe would make you a faster athlete outside of the rowing boat? Because you, at the end of the day, you spend the majority of your life outside of the rowing boat. You do spend a lot of time in there. Yeah, so I think we learned a lot in the time with the lady four and that everyone has different ways of getting to a high performance place and high performance for me is just being better every day i believed in a fair amount of balance in life you can't just be all in on rowing like you have to be able to mentally switch off and that's where the balance comes in so the balance in switching on and switching off um, was really important i think in the latter four years of my my career john and i had a really strong relationship in the boat but we were actually really good at like not seeing a huge amount of each other out of the boat Quite like the guy, no problems with that, but it was really focused in the boat. So like if you, uh, we brushed on a lot of these like different little elements helping helping your performance. And now if you're talking to like a group of schoolboys uh, training in the eights, I mean, I know SA Champs is coming up this weekend. Um, so if you're chatting to them, what did, what did you say would be like the top two things that they should, fo- that, that anyone should focus on to get their performance, to get a big margins of performance? Because I mean, it's very easy for, someone to look and, and go, oh, well, the, the, the national team or the Olympic team are doing this, and that must be so important and, and focus on, and maybe that's just a 1% element of our team. I think with two weeks to go, um, there's not a huge amount that I'd want to add into anyone's sort of team dynamic at this stage. Um, but if I got the opportunity to talk to them in their first week of training before Botres, um, I would be really encouraging them to, to sort of, my strong belief is make the hard harder and the light lighter. So don't get caught up doing steady state too firm and make sure that when it comes to pieces, you're really strong and really fast and um, make sure you're training your body to be able to produce that big power. But when it comes to steady, it's all about feeling and being long and loose. Um, and let just let the long hours, just you wanna be able to paddle for longer. If you're doing steady state too hard and you, they're not tired and you skip the last 10 minutes, well then you've wasted your time in my view. Um, you should have been a little bit lighter and done an extra 15, not 10 short. But at the same time, the most important thing you can do is be ready for those high-intensity pieces you do in the last little bit. I guess that would be my suggestion in this final phase now, is to just relax and enjoy the last little bit and not overthink it, just have good feeling. And when the coach gives you an opportunity to go up against the clock, if it be a 1,000-meter piece or 500, make sure you wind that as hard as you can. Get as much power out of your engine as you can. And that'll give you the best last few days of prep. Then what are some of the things that help your performance that are, are maybe not so obvious that other people wouldn't notice or, or you know, that played a big role in behind the scenes? The biggest thing for me was the team dynamic. Um, I couldn't train on my own. Um, the hardest weeks of my entire year were December. I wouldn't say every kilometer was like needles in my eye. Every hundred meters <laughs> were needles in my eye. I did not enjoy a single kilometer of December own training that we used to do. Um, I used to like dread it. 
and I think it's a hugely social time. I come from like a very tight family on both my wife's side and my side. So December was always big family time and it was so hard to do those miles. It was the last thing I felt like doing and I remember in my in the London year I did a fair, fairly good December and in the Rio year I was really focused and emotionally it probably took quite a lot out of me but it was like a hurdle I had to get over. So that December training was really hard for me but the rest of the year was really easy and I think that's for me it was easy because the team dynamic was really good it was social all the time and the group like tagged you along you could when you were feeling a bit flat you could just hang on and let the group pull you through and when you were feeling good um you would pull the group along you would add the momentum to the group so yeah without a shadow of a doubt if our training system was different and we had to train huge blocks of the year independently which is like what it's like in europe a lot of the guys barely uh, the French pair spends like six or ten weeks a year together yeah. and we're spending like six weeks apart from each other. So if I trained out of that system, I can guarantee I wouldn't have had half the results I had. So that was probably the biggest thing that people don't realize. I don't have this like internal get up and train thing in me. Um, but within our team structure, I could perform really well. Which is one of the reasons why keeping the team in, in one centralized place is is better in my opinion there's not a shadow of a doubt in my mind that a decentralized system would the transfer of knowledge is slower the subcultures that develop within the team are less um, beneficial to the team i believe the cultures that we develop while we're all together tend to be the things that make you really strong every inch counts things like um, there's always more all of those sub trends that we used to come through our training and these were things we used to say to each other all the time those are really strong and powerful things and I think with if we had been training apart that team culture wouldn't have, wouldn't have been there come world champs come world cups and come the Sutu training camps it would be like we're all meeting each other for the first time as opposed to a big group or family moving moving up up into the mountains for three months or three weeks of training so I mean you've been in the squad pretty much from its inception or just after 2008 when the team actually started to to train and do everything together how, how what's your view of that evolution of the team to to what you see today i was probably as the squad is seen within the rank, south african rank community today i was there from the, the beginning of that startup but there was some amazing stuff that happened before me and i think and amazing results as well yeah of course but i think the most important thing was the mental barriers that got opened by don and amon um as a schoolboy, i had this assumption that going overseas must be better and it must be better overseas and then I went to Junior World Champs and I'd won my medal at Junior World Champs and then I watched Don Amon medal at um, the Athens. Athens Olympics yeah so I watched that I watched that and I was like there really must be something going on here there must be it must be better on this side um, if they can medal at the Olympics from here we can do it and from that moment of watching them I don't really remember the process so much but I just remember saying like I'm staying I'm going to be in South Africa. I'm going to race at home. And from that moment of that medal, um, I also believed that winning a medal from an Olympic medal from South Africa was possible. So they really opened up the passage, passageways. Um, but then I got to a senior world champs in 2007. And Matt and I medaled at under 23 world champs. And we got to join the team. And at that stage, the lightweights were in a really bad space. They'd had a bad build-up to their f- what was then trying to qualify for the Beijing Olympics. And we joined them and they last sort of like four or five weeks together. And I remember thinking like, it has to be better than this. Like this is, like the guys were really, I think the athletes are really amazing people, but 
I think they were really depressed at that point. They'd realized that they weren't going to qualify even by that training camp. And I remember Matt and I just sort of sitting there saying, like, it has to be better than this. It can't, this can't be the standard. Um, we believed we were training more professionally at an under-23 level than they were. And then there was a the whole collapse, and we don't need to go into that detail, but after the Beijing Olympics... Because um, Roger coached you for under-23s, and then he sort of went on to Beijing and then took the team on from there. Yeah, so Roger coached us to under-23s, and he coached the girls like we double to Beijing. Um, there were three crews in Beijing, but the whole system had collapsed, and there was no one was working together, really, and funding had run out. And this academy, what happened was there was, an, I guess a lot of the listeners wouldn't, wouldn't no, know this. I don't know. That. I think we should good yeah. thing we touch on it now. Yeah. Um, so basically what happened was the, the, the money had run out in rowing South Africa. Um, obviously, it's a challenging space always. It's a continual challenge for us. But the money, as I understand it, the money had run out and they pulled the academy, which was something that Matt and I had just got involved with in the 2007-2008 space. And to keep the Olympic team going and try to get some results at the Olympic, which is a thing that would create more funding, more funding going forward. So they had to pull the plug out of the development stuff to try and like keep the current, the really top athletes. Um, but it was a bit of a topsy turvy system because the academy was working really well and like developing good stuff, I believe. And the top guys all had jobs, and it was the sport had evolved beyond where you could compete with a job. And then the money ran out and they took the money from the system that was working and plugged it in the top. In the system that wasn't necessarily working In the so system well. that was busy collapsing. And, but at the same time, what resulted in is Sean and Amon got a fifth place at the Olympics. And I think that was actually South Africa's like third best result because it was such a bad Olympics Beijing, um, which allowed funding to then be plugged back in. But in amongst all of this, the academy just had continued without any money. Academy had just continued. The athletes had carried on arriving at Rudaplat training. Um, Roger had funding with the lightweight girls, so he had funding to carry on coaching. And in amongst all of that, the academy morphed into the national team, and it was the place where it was best to train. And they had a centralized base at Hatf- uh, in, in Hatfield and Rudaplat, and you couldn't recreate that if you tried. It would be impossible to recreate that. If you went out and said, this is what we're going to try to do, it would always be people in Cape Town who would be upset. But it just happened. It was the best place to be, and it developed naturally, and it learned how to run without any funds, and it really taught our national team how to run lean. And it's evolved with great people. That's where Jimmy Clark was first involved, the physiologist. Roger was obviously there. Um, and Christian stood aside and went to, over to the UK. Um, and I think it just morphed into like a really powerful centralized training system. Without a shadow of a doubt, that's the best structure we could have in rowing South Africa. Um, I know a lot of guys would love to see development pieces all over, but I just don't believe our system's big enough. And the most important thing is that an athlete wants to be in the place where they're going to be the fastest. That's a life choice for an athlete. And if as soon as an athlete doesn't make that choice, then they've made the first choice in their lives not to be as fast as they possibly can. Yeah. So it's as simple as that. Um, I believe in the centralized system and it's produced great results and produced some great athletes. I mean, like four years later, you guys won a gold in, in, in London, which was fantastic. And then after London, you know, it was, things changed a little bit. I know you guys raced in 2013 in lightweight four. Um, Matt retired, uh, Mike Foreman got involved, you guys came sixth. And then following that, you guys moved into the lightweight double, which would become 
a recurring theme over the years towards Rio. Explain to us what that changeover was like and then the ch just the change from performing in a four to a new boat class and what kind of attitudes did you take towards it, like almost a new, completely new experience? Yeah, I think the four of us, first to touch on, uh, Matt, Matt took a year off to try to get his back right and in a year later his back was still not right. So he had taken a full year off and it was at that point clear that he wasn't coming back. Um, but Mike joined the team at that stage and Mike was really strong and for, I think he was about 19 years old at that stage and we had a 19 year old in, in the boat and Mike was on fire in Lucerne and we ended up with a fourth place in Lucerne and that was really good to have a new combination of guys put together and end up with a fourth place but there was this expectation of winning gold that we had put together and um, I think Mike was actually on fire that year and the three of us left in the boat had had like sort of a little bit of post-Olympic blues yeah. and we're maybe not at our finest moment. A lot of guys might look at that and say, oh, well, what's changed? Mike's in the boat. But actually, I think Mike was on f at the two big world races of the year. Mike was on fire. And I remember like coming into the line and this, so I got sick in Korea, which made the whole week really complicated and I got really, really ill. But we ended up with sixth place. But we only made that final, I think, because of Mike. Mike was absolutely going ballistic in the semi-final. And I remember thinking... This like needs to chill, like we got this. And then we crossed the line and we made the final by like point one of a second. Another close finish. Another close finish, but that one was all Mikey. He was in the back screaming his lungs out and putting out the big ones. But I hadn't enjoyed that year um, because of the pressure of the four, not because of the four guys we were with. The pressure and the expectation was to win gold. And there'd been lots of injuries and frustrations, sort of the volume of training we hadn't been able to get through that year. And then John and I had trained in the double once or twice and sort of had these little like, bursts of speed that we were really exciting. Like that was too fast, you know. Often there's just this natural speed when we rode the double. Um, and we did it about three or four times that season. And then we got back and it just naturally moved in that direction, I guess. Uh, we got the opportunity and then I took, I got married that year and took a little bit of, took a three or four months off after World Champs that year because I hadn't enjoyed the season at all. Uh, what had happened, I took those four months off and then it was just John Caesar and Mike, Condra four with three people and they started training more in the double um, without knowing whether I was coming home or because coming just, back. Uh, just if you're listening then uh, the, the double and the four are the only two lightweight Olympic classes so there's no lightweight pair to go into to, to power up the, of the four yeah it's sort of one or the other it's there's no yeah you, are, you can't switch between them that you got to choose you're yeah. in the four or you're in the double there's no choice um there's either that or you're not going to the olympics so um and we we also didn't want to race on olympic events at that stage of our career we were committed to racing the the top class and then i got back and we got going in the double and john and i again kept showing like really good piece of speed and we really thought that we could train injury free and the two of us had been really reliable up to that point and um, I think moving into the double was exciting and fresh um, but we did have a difficult season and I, I had a stress fracture in my rib that season and missed other than breaking my collarbone in 2011 um, I it was the longest I spent out of the boat and I raced the first international regatta of the year Pedaluco uh, with a stress fracture in my rib and it was developing and then I missed about seven weeks after that um, building up towards the World Cup and then we had an horrific World Cup um, but John and I were really determined at that point 
Um, we kind of knew this boat had some speed, but we knew we also, if we had a bad world champs, we weren't going to be allowed to, we would have moved back to the fall most likely. And yeah, we put our heads down and Amsterdam was the sort of most exciting moment of my career, that's for sure. Um, yeah, I think it's definitely exciting for all of us because watching you guys go from racing in a C final in Lucerne to winning world champs, that turnaround was unbelievable. And also watching the, the transformation of your crew, I mean, because at Lucerne, like not only, it wasn't that you just had a cuck, like you had a cuck regatta, but it, it was more, it was, you guys were not rowing that well together, like th there was something missing. And then watching that transformation from there to rocking up at World Champs and now being ready to, to, to break a world record, that was very exciting for me. I thought that was, that was really cool to watch. Yeah, I think that mental, the mental space John and I were at that time um, was absolutely phenomenal. And I think we try to recreate that quite a lot in our career, but you couldn't have teed up that sort of line of events and you couldn't have had, I don't know, it's a hard thing to recreate that incredibly high level of motivation to get it right. And we had six weeks um, together, so there's seven weeks between the regattas, if I remember, and the team traditionally takes a week apart from each other post-Lucerne. And John and I did like an hour and a half warm down and Lucerne on the back of that sea final. And we were saying like training starts today. Um, a lot of guys, we had one or two beers that night after the finals and we were running the next, we went for a run before we got on the plane the next morning. And we really were straight out. Like Lucerne was just, there was no like come down off the back of Lucerne. There was no rest and recover and then start training again. We went straight in. We'd had a terrible together. But we, we just got stuck in and we would, had the deep desire to get stuck in. No one could have told us to not go for that run and not do that long warm down. And then the team all took their break and John and I got on the, got on the boat straight away. We got home. We had made the decision in Lucerne that we were going to swap it around and John was going to stroke. And I remember rowing and we did some time and the rhythm was really starting to come. The rhythm we believed in was starting to come with Johnny in the front. And I remember actually getting called by like, Lots of like lots of people had like comments and like oh it's going badly and then we getting called by Lawrence's dad and he had like all these comments about like how our rhythm was wrong and because he had a pedal on the dam yeah he rode past you. us he, he rode past us going the other direction and he like and I like respect that he took the time to like try and help and stuff you know what I mean like that's awesome but that's what it was there were like old guys who had rode and like for the guys who don't know like Lawrence's dad knows a lot about rowing so it's not like it's coming from a uneducated yeah. source this guy he's he's raced around the world himself so but that's where we were guys were running past us and getting on the balance saying you need to fix this you need to fix that um but the two of us stuck to our guns and stuck to what we we like to call a lazy rhythm and yeah the rest i guess just unfolded from there this huge determination and eventually as we started coming into amsterdam we started getting this like glimpse of like what i call real speed and sort of like suddenly running world record splits became something when the conditions were good we just batted out one after another and by the time we got to that Amsterdam heat we were it was like Lucerne was history and we were really confident in what we were doing and actually battled in the week with a boat set up there quite a bit and I guess that distracted us but overall we were really confident and believed that our boat was moving fast and that we could and we also I guess believed the world record would fall that week which it did yeah I mean, the Amsterdam conditions were quick it was I think a couple of world records came down. That's Jeez, a lot of world together. records came down. Well, the Sinkovich brothers in the in the double, they went under six. Mm -hmm. Only double to ever go under six, which is pretty awesome. 
the French guys beat they beat the, the they broke the record in the is it the heat or the semi? No, they broke it in the heat. So we turned the taps off with two fifty to go, and Rog was screaming from the bank for us to stay taps on, and we we had a decent race with the Swiss, and then when the Swiss were beaten at five hundred to go. 250 to go I turned the taps off and we missed we missed the world record by about a second after turning the taps off for a full 250 and then the French six minutes later the French went even faster than we would have gone there and they, they were I think they were quite happy about about that and then the final you guys and you didn't beat it by much you took another couple points off there no they took it to 607 I think from six, so it was 610 for years and years 610 yeah it was 610 and then it was like no one had gone under 610 but like so many guys had done 610 so the record was like 610.2 for example and so many guys had gone 610.5 610.6 um any brisk tailwind the guys were doing it but no one had got the combination right to go under 610 um, i think that about five or six crews had been under 611 but no one had in like a five six year window seven year window and then the french took it to 07 and then in the final we took it to 05 six or five five seconds oh it's because you job. won you won by like point zero one of a second yes yes <laughs> yes yes, yes. <laughs> that's what i'm thinking there and just for the for the listeners because rowing is an outdoor sport the conditions play a huge role in the times that you get so in in a tailwind where the the wind is going with you if if every if the the stars line up as they say, then you can put down a monster quick time. Yeah, I think to just talk through that like final a little bit, like yeah, we were. It's one of your favorite races. Yeah, yeah. like so I at this stage medaled at like all levels of my own career except the world champs final, um, senior world champs, and I remember like the wind had been blowing headwind and Johnny and I weren't good in the headwind and it had been an average week and then I remember waking up on that morning and John had ripped the curtains open and we'd worked out which way the wind was blowing in the car park um, of our hotel to know which way the wind was blowing at the course and John was like fist pumping um, that the wind had turned and that there was a tailwind blowing and I'm, and then it was a cross tail and it was raining and I remember saying to Johnny that morning like everyone's going to be miserable but someone's leaving this thing as a world champion. Um, someone's going to win this thing. I kept saying that over and over. Someone's going to win this thing. And it was miserable. And then the crosswind was blowing. And there was lots of talk of them receding lanes. And John and I had been given, like, honestly, I'd been given the gift over in lane one. Um, and then I remember, like, watching the, the... We were sitting in the tent. And we watched the first races come down. And I was like, no, John, they haven't receded it. And then someone was like, no, they're using it just as a test to see the B finals of a test and they're going to change it just before the A's. And I remember watching the first A final come down and they hadn't receded the lanes and I was like, yeah, we're going to get lane one. And then as we were walking to the jetty with a boat, I still didn't believe they were going to give us our lane. And I remember seeing the lady who at World Champs, they carry like a box for your shoes with your bow number in it. And I give you your bow number on the jetty. And I remember like seeing the lady was obviously walking to our boat. And I changed directions to go and like look in her box to see what bow number was there. And it was still lane one. And then I got in the water and I was like, no, don't get excited. Don't get excited about lane one. People have like changed before. Like at the start of World Champs, they've like done a reseed of lanes. And then only when they like called us up and they said South Africa lane one, I was like, it's on. It's on. You don't get chances like this in your life that many times. And when you get, this is what makes sport fantastic. And when you get your chance, you got to go. And yeah, that race just unfolded. And I remember just coming through the thousand again, much the same as Olympics, just thinking like so strong, so strong. And then, yeah, we took our chance in lane one and came with a thunder. And I think the lane one was, 
particularly the second half of the track was starting to get really quick in those uh, lane one, two, and three. Where yeah. the, where that was where the advantage was really coming in, I think. Because they did change the lanes a race after or two after yeah. you guys. Yeah. Because I remember, because we were in the, in the Cox pair with me and David, and uh, we got shunted to lane five or something. <laughs> 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 but that's, that's, that's what sport, sport is, though. Is yeah, that, uh, you, you, the, the, the dice get rolled, and I mean, it's... It it's is out there. It's, it's wild. You got to be good enough to win on any day. Yeah, and we try. I think that day we were we, we took our chances and we ran with them. And it's something. It's a race you got to watch yeah. if you've never seen that Amsterdam. And if you look at our if you look at our team, half of us got Delta short straw. Half of us got a Absolutely. good short. So yeah. I mean, Sean and there, Sean and Vince won in the uh, the bronze in the in the pair. Also getting lane two. So I think it's that's what sport is. You know, there's always a bit of uh, a bit of spice. In the in the racing, absolutely. And we'll definitely put the the racing links in yeah, there. Yeah, you'll see them. Go the go look in the show notes below, and you'll find links to James' famous. You can see why James and John are known for their sprints. <laughs> <laughs> it's about something. Yeah, we, we, we're really not, we're not much of fans of leading from the front. No, you guys don't like you guys don't like winning. It's easy, if I can say yeah. that. You like coming and and upsetting the the order of things at the end. James and and John. But I guess if you actually like, if people are going to watch it, what they need to watch out, what they need to check is, look how the Italians apply pressure onto onto the French through the middle of the race, and that really starts like flustering the French. I think if we had only flustered the French in the sprint finish, we wouldn't have we wouldn't have been they able to convert. Have they yes. would have like been calm and composed because they would only have been pressured for like a minute. Um, but the Italians put huge pressure on the French. And that's the pressure that eventually us applying pressure towards coming with a big rattle and a big pressure towards the end. And then if you really watch closely in the last about four strokes, you actually see a mistake. And that's just the mounting pressure, mounting pressure, mounting pressure, and eventually the French make a mistake. And we were luckily close enough at that they point. They look the boat. Uh, the bowman's right-hand blade in about the third or fourth last stroke sucks in water and then the response it wasn't so much what had happened but then the response of having having the sucked spoon makes um both of them start looking out and listen it's these are both great amazingly fantastic athletes and it's the end of the day in rio the exact same thing happened to john and i i'm virtually carbon copy um it happened to us with about 250 to go not with a couple of strokes to go and yeah it crushes you and emotionally at that stage you're on the limit Everything is on the limit at that stage of a World Champs final and you make one mistake and there's no real coming back from it. So yeah, the pressure mounts and go watch it, enjoy it. Yeah, it's a cool race to watch, especially when you cons- when you know that the Italians move in the middle is what allowed us, I believe, allowed us to win at the end. So it's, it's quite a recurring theme in your, in your results is uh, having a one race either the season before or, or earlier in the season of, of pretty shocking. So like under 23s, they they finished last I think in their first under twenty threes in silver the next year Olympics just making it by the eleventh at qualification first at the at the at the London Games and then yeah C final in the yeah. in the World Cup and then gold at the the World Champs so yeah that, do you I think that gives you a bit of motivation or like what, what I think we trained really well when we were angry. Um, it was was an easy motivation to work off as a lightweight you were both pissed off and hungry so it was never (laughs) (laughs) not a good combination yeah but there's definitely a there's definitely a trend there Um, but I also think it points the picture that you aren't always on top and I think if you went back and looked even my medium results often had bad results before them 
Um, it's just a process of that's how results happen. They aren't all good, sadly. Also, we, we were never good enough to bang out like a five-year un- unbeaten streak or a one-year well, unbeaten. I think those are, are things that stand out in any sport, but it's it's such a few athletes mm, that can do that. Right. So and I also think also it's you don't always stay on top. It's you know if you do badly, that does that doesn't that doesn't define necessarily the the process which you take going on. You can always do better if the will is there. Yeah, there was always a slight adjustment after bad results, but never like knee-jerk. We're going to change everything. It was always, um, and I think that's what we learned in the build-up to London was we trained really well in the build-up to London and had bad results, and then eventually learned how to race well. Um, but I do believe we learned how to train long before the London year. Um, we just only learned how to race and how to move in the last year. So obviously, if your bad results, you come back and you you analyze them and and you decide what you want to change, but. Are there things that, like, if you were to go back and do your, your best performances again, are there things that you would want to do better? So, like, your London race or yeah, Amsterdam, Amsterdam race, would there be things that you would want that you thought, yes, we should have done that better? Absolutely. I think it's hard when you've won to not say, like, oh, well, we won. Obviously, that was good enough. But I think any high-performance athlete is finely tuned to... If I went back to London, it would be... The one thing that screams out at us in London is we stuffed the way up in way up in the heat. Um, luckily, it was such a long regatta, but we we did our. I think we needed to do like a 750 gram sweat, which for us each, which for us was quite big before the weigh-in. Um, normally, we woke up closer than that, and then which was fine. But then we absolutely overcooked it, and we ended up each sweating like most of two kilos. For some, we just overcooked it and. Um, did too much work that morning and so I would change that um, in London which is obviously still a week out from the final and I don't picture the final as just those six minutes it's all part of a bigger puzzle so I would definitely adjust that and in the in the in all the races even even Amsterdam I would I would make uh, some minor adjustments just on technical stuff down the track it seems silly when you've won but yeah as a high performance athlete I think you're always looking for the next step and then James you found yourself um, soon at the 2016 Rio Olympics, and I think after the result in London and the result in 2014, it's it's safe to say you you had gathered quite a, quite a wealth of knowledge, skill, and experience to be able to look forward to putting another good result at at Rio. But unfortunately, it was a bit of a, a disappointing regatta. You guys came yeah. fourth, and I'm sure you guys were looking to come away with a a gold medal or or a podium spot there. Yeah, so I've lost many races in my career and it's generally because you're not fast enough. That's often why you lose and <laughs> yeah. and it's something that you learn to like stomach and you learn to like go home and be better and go home and work something else out. Why were you not fast enough? Um, the most gut-wrenching part about Rio was, it. I don't believe it was that was the case. Um, it's easy to have those emotions, I guess, when you end your career at that point, but um, if you really go and look at the numbers, like John and I were off the charts on a physiological front. Um, we were pushing out the biggest power numbers we could dream of. Our boat speeds were better than in the build-up to Amsterdam in most of our training stuff. It was the first time we'd actually had that like r- real, raw, unbelievable speed all the time um, in the last couple of weeks before Rio. And man, we were fast and we were consistently fast. It wasn't like... Yeah, one it day. wasn't like one day like you we weren't we weren't bullshitting ourselves we were fast at that stage we really had good speed yeah because i mean even me and sean train against you the whole time and 
even if you guys had a bad day, we couldn't we couldn't get a win on you. So if yeah. we were having a good day, I mean, our our, our training was often fairly close, yeah. and but no matter what we did, you guys would always lay down a, we a good performance. You not let us us come through. Without a doubt, that was the highest, consistently highest performing block of training. The six weeks before here, we were off the charts. It's it, and I remember like. I take quietly confident from it and then I also think John and I put together a really good regatta week um, yeah the, the, the extra weigh in along the way with the weather might have affected us minorly but I, I don't believe so um, and we even teed up a good first half of our race um, and I wouldn't adjust a huge amount in that at the end of the day uh, we had always certainly since our previous golds we were racing for gold not silver or bronze and with 700 to go, we really did lay down a big move. And were we going to catch the finch? I don't know, but we were certainly moving, I believe, and the momentum and the pressure. We were starting to squeeze the squeeze the pressure at about 700, and then 500 to go, it started looking really... I started really believing at 500 that we were going to do this, and that's a really strong place to be. And then um, I don't think I registered how close to the limit Johnny was um, physiologically, and I called it up again, and possibly two times again um, when we were really moving and we were really we just needed to kind of be patient and keep doing what we were doing for another 100 or 200 meters and um, the race would have unfolded yeah because I mean about you know 500 400 meters to go I thought you I mean watching I thought you guys were on the money yeah we're starting to come at the French um, all our cookies are in at this stage yeah, classic we, John and yeah James. we all our cookies are in we're cashing in our chips and the boats that top end speed that we had been showing in training starts to show itself and then, yeah, I called it up one more time and I think Johnny just had a blade suck on the right-hand side. And we were so good our whole careers in that like crazy sprint, what we call the Munkle sprint. And sadly, the final sprint of my career was the one sprint on an international stage. We got it wrong. But if you take your law of averages, you know, it had to it's come. It's going to happen. It had to come. If I look how many races we were on the right side of. and You're going to be on the wrong side of, of, yeah. of, of, of one. Hugely disappointing for me to f- spend. I remember even thinking about it like distraught. The moment it happened, it was game over. We were in the fight. I believe we were in the fight for first. And next thing, we were spat out the back. And I look across and I know we're not going to get third. And I know we're not going to get fifth. And I remember crossing the line thinking, I can't believe my last strokes of my own career are going to be soft paddling across an Olympic final. Like, I wasn't even on the limit at that stage. It was game over. Nothing we did was going to change our result at that stage. That was the end of my own career in reality. And hugely devastating to, not that we weren't fast enough, I believe, just that we got it wrong on the day. And I think that was probably one of the darkest, overall darkest days for rowing South Africa. Oh, that um, was a bit of a shock. Just, no, it was. It was, it was a so hugely emotional day and took a lot of people a long time to sort of gain understanding um, and really look at it. But at the end of the day, if, we, if we're if honest, at the end of the day, if we look at our overall crews, we had the same, I think you guys in the pair overperformed slightly on expectation and you ended up with a medal. So you overperformed. I believe the mm-hmm. lightweight... Yeah, we, the heavyweight four definitely... The heavyweight four over, overperformed. And then the two lightweight dub, I would call the heavyweight women slightly below expectation, two expectation. They were pretty much where I would have called them, um, maybe a touch below expectation. And then the two lightweight doubles, like well below expectation. So if you look at it on average, it's, it worked. The, yeah. av- the average was right. It was just our traditionally or our expected slightly lower performing crews overperformed. 
And your expected and our, cruise our expected cruise. So law of averages in the end, maybe it was just a normal day, but I think it was gut wrenching for it was the most emotionally hard day to do that and then to watch the lightweight girls the race after us. Um, no, I think anyone involved with running South Africa knows how, how tough that day was. And, you know, if you have any insight into the athletes that raced that day, you know that it took a, a long time for, for people to come around from, from that. Yeah, it was not, a, not an easy day at all. And what's cool for me is to see how many guys have moved forward and are putting their best foot forward. And mm. amazing to watch Kirst turn around from that place and how driven she is. And she wants to get back on the top step of a podium. And she's obviously done that um, already. And... Yeah, I now sit on the wings. Uh, now you just watch. Now I just sit back and so, watch. Well, let's get into to your retirement because then I mean, you've been pretty, pretty busy since uh, since you 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 put the you hung your oars up and put the boat on the rack. Uh, tell us just quick. Uh, I mean, we have we've gone quite long, so just tell us quick about uh, your Africa trip. And, yes, and so I took se- seven months off with my wife, and we drove across the length of Africa in a Land Cruiser, um, Egypt. Joburg to Egypt, basically, uh, most amazing experience of my life. Uh, we then spent uh, five months in Africa, two months chasing the Tour de France around Europe and just living the dream in Europe for a bit. Um, so Africa trip was absolutely amazing, um, but at the same time, I'm very happy to be back in Joburg, for sure. Got lots going on here. Um, got a bike business, got involved in with two guys who run a bike business, and there's an awesome team of people developing there, which I'm really excited to be part of. Um, and then what, I- what is that uh, so we trade second hand bikes it's called bike market and we trade second hand bikes uh, so if guys are looking to buy or sell bikes uh, yeah we base just outside Santon it's a cool cool group of people and it's an exciting new adventure of mine I'm enjoying it and then there's obviously Rock the Boat which keeps me busy and then I hope I hope everyone listening enjoyed it and we'll be certainly be back next year with some new ideas coming forward there as well and then, yeah, lots going on, lots of talking, corporate talking. I'm as busy as I've ever been, uh, desperately looking for another few hours every day. Cool. So just to wrap things up, um, you did the, the quick fire questions in the, in the earlier episode. So if you want to hear James's 2K PB or any uh, other sports, he would want to go to the games. I think all the other 23 lightweights need to go and listen to that, that 2K PB. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Then you must uh, go and find the, the Rock the Boat episode. That was also quite a good one with uh, Matt and James. So, yeah, thanks so much for sending, giving us plenty of your time, James, and really awesome interview, awesome insight into your sporting career. Sweet. Thanks, thanks guys. James. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hope you guys enjoyed. Tops. Sweet. Hey, it's Jake and Lawrence again. If you're enjoying the show, please share it and let your friends know about it. Also, don't be afraid to leave a comment telling us what you liked, what you didn't like, or any ideas that you have for the show. And you can leave that at theroshowsa at gmail.com. That's theroshowsa at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook and contact us there if you just search The Row Show or on Instagram uh, where the tag is at roshowsa. You can find us on Instagram. Uh, I'm at Britain L, so that's Britain underscore L. And you can find Jake at at Jake Milton Green, all lowercase, all one word. You can also find any info or links on this week's episode in our show notes below. Thanks for listening in. Thanks for listening in. We out. I think we're good at that, hey? That was fucking sounding good, yeah. dude.